Welcome to the Tiwahanga Infrastructure for a Better Future podcast, a series where we talk to experts both from here and overseas about the infrastructure challenges we are facing. All right, so um, we're here with uh, David Skilling, who's the um, director of the Landfall Strategy Group, uh, an advisory firm uh, that provides advice and insights on global economic policy and political dynamics. Um, uh, he's here with us today, and David uh, lives in the the Netherlands. He's a New Zealander um, uh, by background, and amongst other things, has uh, was the uh, founding chief executive of the New Zealand uh, Institute. Um, firstly, David, really great to have you with us. Thanks so much for for taking the time. Um, it's been some years since we since we last spoke, and a, a great deal has happened, I think, uh, in the global economy since then. So very keen to um to to have a chat with you and think about infrastructure in that that context. Perhaps just just if I sort of set the scene here um, and think about the framing for for this discussion, um, you know, we've recently gone through the process in New Zealand of putting together the um, first New Zealand infrastructure strategy. And uh, one of the sort of striking things about bringing that document together, I think, was that the commonalities uh, of the experiences and challenges of other countries um, when thinking about about infrastructure, uh, that infrastructure services um, at their sort of heart really are fundamentally about moving things around uh, either within the economy or between economies. That can be, you know, electrons, it can be water, it can be light in the case of telecommunications, people or freight. Um, and so when we're thinking what is sort of driving the need for moving things around both in local economies and internationally, whether it's wind turbines, transportation networks, or schools, we can sort of boil these things down into a, into a few buckets. Traditionally, we've often thought of infrastructure through a productivity lens, uh, and I think more recently through a social inclusion uh, lens um, and workforce participation. Population growth, of course, you know, more people demand more infrastructure services, uh, geographic trends so that is you know uh, more recently i think uh, big trends of urbanization and and more i suppose more recently than that we've been uh, seeing uh, more growth in the regions particularly in new zealand and we'll talk about a little bit about that uh, as well as demographic trends right where some countries are are aging more than more than others um and of course uh this big problem of of getting to net zero carbon and climate change both mitigation and adaptation um, and against this, we have a, a sort of changing macroeconomic environment and a geopolitical environment that, to my mind, can either act as a headwind to infrastructure uh, or a tailwind. And we've sort of seen both of these in recent times. Um, at the extreme, we can kind of think about the Ukraine, uh, where the stock of infrastructure is in, in many ways literally in decline, as that has been targeted. Uh, and on the other, we have recent legislation like the bipartisan infrastructure law in the United States and the $738 billion Infrastructure Reduction Act as well. And, and the other thing that comes to mind is some of the efforts in uh, Europe to try and reduce consenting times uh, of wind turbines down below 12 months uh, to supercharge energy efficiency. Um, but on the whole, uh, you know, a recent report by the Global Infrastructure Hub that came out this week and its infrastructure monitoring report shows that while private investment in infrastructure is back to pre-pandemic levels, it has actually been stagnant, stagnant uh, at about $160 billion a year for eight years running now. So the, the big challenge sort of remains in front of us if we want these objectives 
<clears throat> that we have from infrastructure, whether it's net zero carbon, housing affordability, poverty alleviation, uh, or greater economic uh, opportunity and productivity. Um, so, you know, I think that those to me are sort of some of the, I think, the connections between the geopolitics and the drivers of infrastructure. But let me sort of bring you in here and, and, and ask you the question, what are sort of the major international events and trends that you're seeing right now that are shaping some of these big uh, infrastructure markets across the globe? Yes, well, I think the, the, the way that I think about framing this is clearly there's a lot of uh, stuff, big stuff happening at the moment from Ukraine to inflation uh, to US-China on and on. And, you know, I think that the thing that ties all of these things together is that we are in the midst of what I call a, a regime change. We're shifting from one economic and political model uh, to another, and that's been underway for some time. I think uh, the events of last year, uh, particularly around Russia's invasion of Ukraine, accelerated that. So I think we're, in, in the context of a, a conversation on infrastructure, it's interesting that we're, we're trying to have this conversation as we navigate our way uh, into a new uh, environment. And to use your language of kind of tailwinds and headwinds. I mean, clearly one headwind at the moment uh, is, you know, higher interest rates, politics of a higher inflation environment, it's more costly to borrow capital, uh, it's going to become more costly uh, again, uh, I think. So there are some uh, constraints, also concerns, obviously, about the pace of growth, at least over the next um, uh, period of, of time, although I err on the side of optimism, but still mm -hmm. there are some, uh, some concerns in the economic space. But I think, you know, perversely, perhaps, some of these political and geopolitical disruptions are adding a degree of intensity and urgency to debates around uh, infrastructure. So if you think about uh, the desire for uh, strategic autonomy, for greater independence, be that energy uh, or technology, uh, you know, commonly we're seeing uh, countries, you know, either uh, you know, deploy capital or plan to deploy capital, uh, be it in a renewable space uh, and nuclear uh, in some cases, to strengthen their ability to be uh, more independent from external forces. Now, clearly, that's more of a case for, for larger countries uh, like the US or the EU uh, as a whole. But even for smaller countries, we're seeing you know, a much greater push to be less exposed to uh, the decisions of, of other parties. So yeah, this is one part of how do you compete uh, in this more challenging environment is around autonomy, around independence. Uh, energy is one component of that and increasingly important. And that's in addition to the, the kind of the the net zero um, uh, ambition and the kind of emissions framing. This is simply how do we make sure that we can maintain it? I think uh, you know, countries are also thinking, how do you navigate through the shifting geography of global supply chains? Uh, how do we build resilience? How do we build uh, connectivity in a way that can be sustained? And that speaks to issues like ports, uh, airports, all of that kind of, uh, kind of connective tissue, if you like, uh, that links mm -hmm. uh, economies to the world. Uh, and so countries really thinking hard about what infrastructure build do we need uh, to ensure that we are well serviced and we can, given all the additional frictions and costs that are going to be imposed on global supply chains, how do we minimise that portion of cost that's associated with the of it? Again, ports, uh, airports. And I think, you know, in general, we are seeing, I think, uh, what I call the return of a state. Uh, the expectations on government coming out of a pandemic, uh, again, with the, the recent energy crisis, particularly in Europe, Get more is expected of the government in terms of buffering against shocks, uh, providing a measure of, of insurance, but also in the context of this you know, heightened strategic competition, you know, a sense that the government is going to have to invest more you know, on a raft of dimensions, be it core public services, but in terms of things like uh, military uh, and defensive infrastructure, you know, transport, communications, uh, mm -hmm. so on and so on. So I think you know, on a range of things, we're seeing countries you know, approach the infrastructure conversation through a slightly different lens. It's not simply some of the lenses that you mentioned in around 
social inclusion or productivity, they remain obviously very important. There's an additional level of uh, intensity. Uh, yeah, clearly, the economic and social uh, demands are not going away. But in addition to that, uh, we've seen the emergence of almost a wartime footing. It's cold war, not hot war, but a cold war uh, type footing where countries are using infrastructure as a way of positioning themselves to compete uh, mm. on, a, on a range of domains. So I think, and that's true for small as well as as well as large countries, and has a message I think for for New Zealand as well. So, so let's move to sort of um, small small economies now, because I know that's an area that you focus on particularly globally. Um, you know, you often hear this. Um, this idea that when the big economies sneeze, small economies catch a cold. Um, but your sort of more recent commentary, I think, struck a more optimistic tone for the little guys. Um, you, you've suggested that small advanced economies could actually outperform larger economies or are outperforming larger economies. Um, you, you've mentioned the example of green energy initiatives pursued by small economies around the North Sea, for instance. Um, where are the infrastructure opportunities for small economies right now, do you think? So let me just put a bit of context around that. So you know, I, I specialise in, in small advanced economies, of which New Zealand obviously is one. Uh, and if you look over multiple time horizons, be it through the pandemic, be it financial crisis, be it over the last few decades or in the last several decades, uh, small economies as a group consistently overperform larger economies in terms of GDP growth uh, and in terms of various other measures, be it social measures um, um, or skills, innovation, a whole raft of measures, you see small economies consistently doing uh, very well. And I think that's partly because small economies have to, right? They are deeply exposed uh, to what goes on outside their borders. They have to adapt, adapt and they have to adjust uh, to change. They need to be uh, distinctive uh, and competitive. And so small economies are uh, both are and have to be uh, more agile uh, and responsive and very, very focused on uh, how they can compete in global markets. Um, so I think you know, that, that kind of is a bit of a, a segue to thinking about infrastructure, because for many small economies, infrastructure is a key component to how they present to the world, uh, how they develop um, competitive advantage. Uh, and I think you know, at the moment, you know, there are a few uh, vectors um, uh, of change that we see playing out in the infrastructure space. One, is, as you mentioned uh, just now, is around renewables. Uh, so small economies, many of them uh, are seeing big opportunity in the renewable space, uh, both in terms of using it to drive down uh, emissions intensity and, and meet targets, but also a view that as you do that, uh, as you lower the emissions intensity, you become a more competitive uh, location for the firms, for capital to come in, your goods and services that are produced in a lower emissions way uh, become more competitive in global markets as consumer preferences shift. So we're seeing in many cases, uh, small economies front foot at that transition uh, and different countries obviously have different uh, natural resource endowments, but either through hydro or wind or solar, We've seen many small countries move really quite quickly. Uh, and New Zealand obviously has uh, done uh, you know, that in some measure as well, benefiting, of course, by decisions made a few decades back in terms of hydro. But nevertheless, you know, New Zealand, along with other small countries, is moving quickly because they see, I guess, a, a commercial and economic imperative around doing that. And also it's, it's striking that you know, beyond that uh, you know, desire to secure competitive advantage, that many small economies in Denmark is perhaps the most obvious of these, uh, you know, at the frontier for the last three, four decades, they've been building very strong green technology uh, mm. positions. And so if you look at the sectors in which Denmark or Netherlands or, or others have positions of competitive advantage, often it's in the green space. So for the Dutch, it's around hydrogen, building a green hydrogen economy. Uh, for the Danes, it's around wind, use of wind, uh, and also the technology. 
And you're seeing similar debates playing out in Scotland uh, and Ireland uh, as well. And so I think for small economies, they see infrastructure, uh, the choices made around infrastructure as deeply strategic uh, and as deeply mm-hmm. connected to how they are going to build uh, a competitive position. And you see in other forms of infrastructure, I mentioned earlier, Singapore uh, ports and airports is building the largest automated port. It's building a fifth terminal at Changi. So they are constantly thinking, like in a world that is fragmenting, where supply chains are increasingly exposed to frictions, you know, we need to be best in class and we need to be pushing the frontier out. So you know, many small economies are looking at infrastructure and saying, this is not just for domestic purposes, this is absolutely central to position ourselves to succeed in what will be a challenging uh, global environment. Yeah, so this is this is good news for a little country at the bottom of the world, right? I mean, we we often talk about the tyranny of distance. Uh, it often comes up in policy conversations in New Zealand, where we kind of reflect on how far away we are and how difficult it is to get here and all of these things. So you've sort of mentioned renewables. I mean, the other one that strikes me, of course, is you know in the sort of new age of work from home, where people can sort of uh, locate wherever they want now and dial into the global. Uh, labor force. You know, is there an opportunity here for New Zealand to be competing for talent on the basis of, you know, its landscapes and amenities that it has here? Uh, yeah, but I think we overrate how distinctive our amenities are. I mean, Switzerland's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Attest to that, yep. <laughs> that are pretty nice as well. So yes, New Zealand is distinctive, but we're not unique in, uh, you know, all those uh, amenities. And I think, uh, you know, we we, we talk a big game about how distinctive we are. I mean, I think tyranny of distance, frankly, uh, does still matter. Uh, despite communications technology, people do cluster. Uh, they want to be next to other smart people. Time zones uh, still matter. So I was involved 10, 15 years back in making the case for uh, fibre to the home, which was a precursor to getting the ultra-fast broadband network. Mm-hmm. But the whole case for doing that was that you know, given where... Uh, growth is coming from, and given New Zealand's physical location, it's critically important that we build out communications infrastructure, both domestically, fibre to the home, uh, but also the the, the cables uh, across oceans to make sure that New Zealand can participate uh, in that kind of emerging uh, set of, of growth activity. So, so that's great. New Zealand's done actually a very, very good job of doing that. But to really leverage that uh, infrastructure, you need to bundle a whole bunch of other stuff around it, uh, research, uh, innovation, uh, talent, skills, uh, figuring out which sectors you're really going to double down on in order to ensure that you can leverage uh, extract maximum value from uh, from the infrastructural investment that they've made. And, and going forward, of course, nothing sleeps, right? So now it's 5G, the Internet of Things. So you know, what's the next generation of, of infrastructure that we need to be investing in to make sure that New Zealand has a chance of overcoming it being a small, distant economy? None of this is fatal, uh, but the reality is that being small and physically distant you know, is a real headwind. Um, and does require significant investment. I mentioned earlier that small economies do um, you know, outcompete. That's directly true. Small economies do very well, but it's hard. Right? And the distribution of outcomes is wide. Not all small economies do well. The small right. economies that do well are those that invest, that have a very clear sense of strategic intent, know what they want to do, including around infrastructure, and operate with a sense of strategic coherence. So I think the, the issue for New Zealand is how do we take that forward-looking point of view, where we've got a clear sense of what it is we actually want to do, how we're going to compete, and then invest uh, aggressively uh, behind that. So, you know, New Zealand, I think, you know, does have a bunch of, in principle, benefits that we could leverage a lot better than we are at the moment. Uh, but we've got to do that, I think, quite deliberately uh, and quite aggressively. Um, but you're right, in, in a post-COVID world, we're working from home, where perhaps, you know, distance matters less to some activities. There is an opportunity. But as with many of these things, we're not the only ones who can see this. You know, other countries, other firms are moving very quickly. 
That that leads into my next question, I suppose, which is really thinking more about within um, country dynamics and and patterns of of uh, of location. Um, and you know, you look around the world in the sort of post um, pandemic uh, space, and you see cities that are. Uh, I think sort of starting to look a little bit different, right? Where the last 20 years we were talking about urbanization, we were talking about central cities. Uh, now you've got office buildings in San Francisco that are about 40% of pre-pandemic uh, occupancy. Um, and I think a question that's that's being posed, certainly amongst urban economists, you know, is this is this a, a shock where we'll go back to um, previous sort of patterns, or is this the sort of thing that's going to change the nature of where people live, work, and play in the cities, and and the the infrastructure implication of that? Um, you know, should should stare us right in the face, right? Which is, are we still trying to get people into the central city, or is there something else at play here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Obviously, a pandemic is a fairly recent uh, history, so it's difficult to be completely definitive. But you're right. I mean, around the world, you see a fairly consistent pattern of behaviour where mobility into cities is reduced, public transport use is down, uh, you know, office uh, occupancy is you know 40, 50 percent down on on pre-pandemic levels, and that seems to be somewhat sticky. And I think listening to chief executives, they seem somewhat resigned to the fact that people are not coming back to the office five days a week. It might be you know, two, three, four days a week, depending. On so I think. It seems to me that, um, that those behaviours you know, are global. Uh, they seem to be fairly universal across sectors, at least kind of white-collar sectors. Obviously, if you need this or work on the factory floor, this is less true. But for, for office workers, the people who work um, uh, for the most part in cities, things do seem to be different and consistently so. Uh, and so I think there is going to be a shift, clearly, in infrastructure demands. So if you're a provider of public transport, people are coming in three days a week, not five days a week, that does huge damage to your uh, economics. If you own commercial real estate, you know, it's huge damage to your uh, to your bottom line as well. And so you have discussions around, can you swap out commercial real estate and get you know, convert that into homes? So get more people living in the CBD, or do in fact people want to live you know, with greenery and open spaces mm -hmm. and kind of telecommute? So I think you know a lot of these debates are still live. It does have, as you say, have enormous implications for where and how much you invest in various forms of infrastructure, be that uh, kind of accommodation, uh, be that transport, be that energy. I don't think it's completely shaken down yet. But again, the, the thing that of all of the, the kind of a, the, the, the COVID thematics, um, you know, this location uh, vector seems to be the most enduring. I mean, you see mm. the, the share price of Zoom go up and down, the Peloton go up and down. There's something about location that seems stickier. Uh, people's preferences have really shifted. Uh, and I think for infrastructure providers and funders, there, there are a really important set of uh, issues, and particularly for a country like New Zealand that is so physically spread out. You can work from Hamilton and Tauranga, come into Auckland once every couple of weeks. You know, why not? Uh, mm. So I don't think we know exactly what that's going to look like, uh, which makes it tricky because you've got to make long-term investments, you know, 20, 30 years, and you don't really know exactly what that demand is going to uh, like. But these are issues that, you know, countries around the world are struggling with. I think for small countries, I guess the caveat to this is that it turns out in, in small countries, the large city in small countries is disproportionately important. Right? So you look across be it the Nordics, you know, Helsinki, Stockholm, uh, Copenhagen, Oslo, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You see Dublin, um, you see the large city uh, being a magnet for talent, uh, for capital. It's often where the major airport and kind of international connective infrastructure is. So in, in a sense, for small countries, there are some risks with you know, running down your large city because you become less uh, attractive, less competitive for those mobile factors of production and other kind of internationally act oriented activities. So 
I think yeah, for small countries, getting that balance right between kind of domestic economic geography uh, and the international or outwardly facing bit of international geography is really, really important. So many smaller countries are thinking about, you know, do we need to rebalance? Are we too reliant on our big city? Do we need to have a more regional approach, which is happening in New Zealand? You see similar debates in the Nordics, uh, in Ireland uh, and elsewhere. But I think there's a limit to how far you can push that because, if, as I said, if, you, if your large city becomes subscale, that has a has significant spillover effects in terms of nationwide productivity. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, quite one of the discussions around here really on the on the back of that is thinking about what is our regulatory flexibility to let those things happen, right? If you're not kind of sure where um, people are going to go or firms are going to go, you know, we've got in place um, district plans that have, you know, put forward where people can go, where we expect them to go. And all of a sudden with a big shock, you're kind of rethinking, well, does this still make sense? And so um, it brings into to play these questions of how much flexibility do we have within our sort of land use rules or district planning that allow some of these decisions to actually actually take place. But you, so you sort of um, mentioned there uh, about competitiveness and particularly attractive talent and that's one that really resonates with me I think New Zealand sort of uh, lives and breathes on its ability to attract uh, highly talented individuals here um, and we're currently facing you know quite significant workforce shortages um, that limit in many ways our capacity and capability across all stages of infrastructure planning and delivery um, and we're looking to uh, ramp up I think uh, infrastructure in unison with so many other countries right just as we're putting forward what we think are quite substantial and large infrastructure pipelines uh, that are in the order of sort of 70 billion you know Australia is over 300 billion um, the US is far far larger than that of course um, uh, and one one US study that I looked at yesterday sort of said that the energy workforce will need to expand by some 300 percent out to 20, 2050 so you know we're in fierce competition for the talent um, that we're going to need if we want to achieve some of these national objectives around housing affordability and net zero carbon. Um, I know you've written about New Zealand's productivity performance and immigration policy previously. I'd be curious just to hear a little bit from you about how New Zealand can compete for talent uh, with the rest of the world and what sort of policy settings we might need to think about. Well, at one level, New Zealand has historically competed very well. I, mean, I might say too well, right? I mean, we've had very, very strong levels for the last, well, certainly for the the 10, 15 years prior to the pandemic. Obviously, it's low now. Certainty about how quickly that will come back. But New Zealand's been pretty open. English speaking, nice place to live. So we've had no great difficulty bringing in people. There is an issue about whether we're bringing the right people at schools who can up the right sectors. But I think in the context of a slightly more focused conversation, as you're suggesting, you know, how do you get people to come in and contribute to construction? housing, um, building roads, building bridges, those sort of things. Even uh, other countries are also looking to uh, do the same and to attract that same global talent. I think the answer is it's going to be difficult. I mean, New Zealand in general offers lower wages, uh, a lower productivity, uh, lower wage economy than Australia. It's about a bit higher than us and certainly than, um, than other countries. We do have some offsets, of course, in terms of you know, we're a nice place uh, to come. My earlier comments uh, notwithstanding, but we're kind of a, a nice place uh, to come. But we're also an expensive place to come and getting a house, renting a house. It's super, super expensive. So I think you know, this is at best going to be a long term. Right? We're not going to have a huge influx of people coming and saying, we want to help you build stuff. Uh, you know, we're a rung or two down on the food chain uh, below Australia and below Singapore and the like. So I think we need to get you know, creative and joined up and very thoughtful. And how do we think about 
providing uh, training in schools to our domestic population, right? So yes, labour markets are tight. But there's also you know, a number of people that could be you know, trained uh, in these areas. Our, our tra trades and vocational uh, education in New Zealand is not world it's getting better, but it's not where it should be. Uh, so thinking hard about, you know, what are the different options for securing that pool of talent with the appropriate skills for our infrastructure requirements? Looking at home, I think, is really important, providing the, the pathway to contribute. Uh, obviously, aggressively hunting that talent internationally, um, as we are, I'm sure. If we're going for that, we just want to go on the global labour market and bring people in. The reality is that's going to be difficult for exactly the reasons you suggest, which is everybody is doing this. Everyone has big infrastructure uh, demands. Uh, and so I think we need to you know, be very calibrated in terms of the pace, uh, the sequencing, uh, and also to the extent that we can, um, you know, just be as thoughtful and aggressive as we can around uh, using new technologies, new capital to economise on, on labour. Uh, so Singapore uh, is investing heavily in technologies like 3D printing, uh, automation, uh, new tunnelling technologies and the like, exactly because mm -hmm. it's finding it difficult to attract labour that it needs for its very aggressive build-out. Uh, so again, you know, it's the sort of thing that New Zealand should be investigating. It's certainly not a, a silver bullet, but I think the reality is this is going to be difficult uh, in construction as it is, frankly, across most sectors of the economy. Post-pandemic, labour markets the world over are really, really tight. Uh, and I think New Zealand firms across many sectors are going to find it much more difficult than pre-COVID uh, to secure the, the talent and, and the people they need. And, and construction is... is um, <laughs> Unfortunately, no exception to that. Mm. One of the things you hear from sort of uh, industry participants is the certainty of the pipeline, right? If, if only we knew what it was over a, a very sort of either medium or long term, what it is that you want to build, where and when, we would be prepared to invest in the workforce um, uh, to make it all happen. But, you know, obviously there are, are swings and roundabouts in terms of which projects we're going to do, when we're going to do them and where we're going to do them. It, you know, are there other places where you think have have it been able to answer this question of creating pipeline certainty for the industry so that they can invest more fully in, in the workforce? So, I mean, well, yes is, is the answer. I mean, part of this does revolve around um, the population policy as well, particularly for small countries, having a sense of, you know, is, uh, is the growth rate half a percent, two percent negative? I mean, so having a sense of, you know, what the underlying population um, growth is going to be gives you a sense of what demand is going to be like for schools, for the roads for energy uh, and so you know singapore has planning parameters around population growth variation it's not um, second decimal play stuff but it gives a sense of you know that, and that enables them to say look here's what we're going to do over the next 10 20, 30 years time new zealand's population policy has been somewhat less uh orchestrated shall we say than that it's a bit cyclical uh, which does make things more difficult and i'd also say so and i otherwise agree with you i mean being able to communicate with credibility here is a timing for these kind of key infrastructure projects over the next 5, 10, 15 years' time, uh, and we're going to do this in a sequencing way. It's not going to be five years of feast followed by five years of famine. It does give people confidence. You've got to invest in capital and training and all that good stuff. Covered a number of issues here, um, all the way from sort of geopolitical events right through to uh, to more micro urban events and, and pipeline certainty and workforce. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time um, and we'll bid you farewell. And I hope it, I hope we cross paths much sooner than it has been over the last few years, David, um, but all the very best and uh, we'll see you again soon. Great, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Infrastructure for a Better Future. To find out more about the infrastructure challenges we are facing, visit strategy.tiwahanga.govt.nz.